Hello and welcome to Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. I'm Becky Parker Geist and I'm your host. Audiobook Connection is your place to learn about the audiobook creative process in discussions between the authors, narrators, producers, and post-production teams that bring them all together, as well as guests who have listened to the audiobooks and have questions for the creative teams. This podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Hello and welcome to all of our wonderful listeners. Thanks so much for being with us today. And today, Lee Wind is here with me. Lee is the author of five books and, as he puts it, aims to empower kids and teens to be their authentic selves and change the world. Books that would have changed his life as a young gay Jewish kid. He's also a blogger and works for the Independent Book Publishers Association, and we will get back to that point a little bit later. But welcome, Lee. Thank you, Becky. I'm really excited to be here. And I'm laughing at my little intro because I'm thinking, oh, just change the world. That's all. Oh, that's what, <laughs> you know, I I saw, I talk about that all the time, too, because I think that is actually what we're doing, each one of us, you know, and the thought of the butterfly effect came to mind. But I really think that we can feel it in more significant ways than that when even in the simplest things. And I want to just kind of go ahead down this this short rabbit hole for a moment, because, you know, like when we're walking down the street and somebody smiles at us. And we smile back, you know, we, we've just changed the world. We've changed their world for that moment. And that can actually have a really significant impact as their day goes on. So, and, and that's in a tiny way. But when we're telling our stories, sharing our stories, we're getting in those, those are more ingrained or become more ingrained in the way that we think about things, the way that we perceive another person. So it's huge. So yeah, we're doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes think, yeah, we are. I sometimes think that it's like when one book touches one heart and makes an impact, that that is changing the world. There's an old Jewish saying about like, you know, if you save one life, you, you've saved the world. And it's a little bit that same idea, right? Like if you can, like big impacts start with small moments. And, you know, books have this amazing way of bypassing all a lot of our external filters and really touching touching our hearts in a way that because you know we're we're internally doing all that amazing processing of the story and that and the empathy kicks in and we feel for the characters and we get excited or scared or you know it it's we're living the story through the storytelling and that's very powerful yeah yeah, I agree. I, it was one of the, so very early went on for me, you know, in the uh, stepping into the publishing world, this was one of the things that I became, just got really clear on that that was, that this is a way in which we can get to know each other as ourselves, that there is, that we're 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 bypassing those boundaries that we so often set up or perceive between us and recognize that oneness we feel it through that very empathic kind of experience yeah yeah we can look different on the outside but on the inside we're all we're we're all dealing with the same kind of thing that's right yeah so tell us a little bit, you know, a little bit more about your background. Like, you know, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Tell us, just give us a hint. Sure. So um, I'm the child of immigrants. Uh, my parents came to America a couple of years before I was born and grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia. And I had a very, I like a very easy and idyllic childhood until I started to sort of figure out that. I didn't fit in. And when I realized how I didn't fit in, that I was a guy that like liked other guys, things started to change for me. And around age 11, I remember a precise moment where I kind of like completely had this epiphany and then in five minutes had to realize I had to keep it a secret that I couldn't tell the people I was closest to in the world, my family, because 
they had brought a lot of their homophobia from their culture with them. And Philadelphia suburbs in the 70s and early 80s was not a a very gay-affirming environment, let's put it that way. So I was closeted from age 11 to age 25. And I, you know, I joke that, you know, it's hard, it's hard to even joke about it, but it was like being undercover. It was pretending, it was dating girls, it was being uh, really inauthentic. And I didn't like myself very much. And it took me a long time to get to a place where it felt safe and I was able to be honest with myself and others to come out. So I look back on those 14 years and I think, man, I, if I can do anything to make other people not have to waste all that time, that would be amazing. And part of the problem was that when I was growing up, there were really no gay role models. I mean, it was, it was before the internet. So, you know, aging myself here, but, uh, you know, we just, there were no role models of, of out happy queer people. And there were no books for kids that included, you know, the, there was a couple of villains, but that didn't help. Uh, you know, and they were sort of pedophile and gross and like, it just was not, it was not helping the cause. Baron Harkonnen and Doom did not help me feel better about being attracted to other guys. Let's just put it that way. And, uh, but then, you know, fast forward after I was out and had been, you know, happily gay and, and out and doing my thing for a while, I attended a talk by somebody who was saying that he believed that the letters that Abraham Lincoln wrote this other guy proved that Abraham Lincoln was in love with this other guy. And I was like, what? How? What? What are you talking about? He's on, he's on Mount Rushmore. He's on the penny. He's on the $5 bill. How can that possibly be true? But I just couldn't get it out of my mind. So I went to the library and I got out a book. And I never particularly liked history. I thought history was kind of boring. It was taught to me as like, here's a, here's a list of names and dates to memorize. Like basically that was how history was presented to me. And um, I was like, cared less. I mean, there was nobody had any reflection of who I was in history uh, as it was taught. So anyway, I get this book. And, you know, as I said, I dated girls and I always sort of like, judged that it was the right thing to do. Like it's what my parents wanted. It's what society was telling me I was supposed to do, but I never felt what I was supposed to feel. I mean, there were a lot of love songs back then. I knew what I was supposed to feel and I didn't feel any of it. And then I was reading, I was just kind of like going through the book and I'm like, again, not a big history fan. And I'm just like randomly flipping through the back of the book was an appendix of all the letters that Abraham Lincoln had written to Joshua Price Speed, or at least the ones that had survived. And there was this one line and it it said, are you now, he was writing, Abraham was writing Joshua. He says, are you now in feeling as well as judgment, glad that you're married as you are? From anybody but me, this would be an impudent question not to be tolerated, but I know you'll tolerate it from me. And then he ends it saying, like, please tell me quickly. I feel very impatient to know. I was like, wait a minute, that that's how I felt. And then I, you know, and then I read more and I was like, okay, so they had lived together for four years. They shared a bed. As some historians say, well, that was normal for the frontier, whether Springfield was the frontier or not, you can argue. But anyway, it's what was really fascinating was that they lived together for four years and then Joshua moves back to Kentucky. He marries this woman named Fanny. And then eight months later, Abraham sends him this letter. Are you now in feeling as well as judgment? Glad that you're married as you are. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a reflection of me in history. I'm not saying I'm as great as Abraham Lincoln, but like I started to do the research and I became convinced that Abraham Lincoln was indeed in love with Joshua Fry Speed. And it just blew my mind. I was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) How? I mean, if I could go back and tell my 11 year old self, hey, the guy on Mount Rushmore was also a guy who like liked other guys. Yeah. It would have changed my whole life. Sure. I, I, maybe I would have felt braver to be to be open and honest earlier. I don't have a time machine, but I, I I'm a storyteller. I love stories, so I decided to write a novel called uh, about a kid, kind of like me, a proxy for me, a novel about a kid today who grows up in a very homophobic small town. And he finds out that he reads, he's in the same sort of situation I was. He's gay, he's closeted, he's inadvertently dating his best friend who's a girl, which is sort of giving him protection from the bullies. And he discovers, he's assigned a book report on Abraham Lincoln. He's, uh, he discovers the same letter I did, and he has the same goosebump moment. And he decides he's going to out Abraham Lincoln on a blog 
to let the world know that Abraham Lincoln was in love with another guy and that maybe he can change the world, right? Going back to changing the world. Maybe if everybody knows that Abraham Lincoln was in love with another guy, then, you know, it won't be so hard for him to be honest and open to. And, you know, as they say, mayhem ensues. Uh, he, he posts the blog, it goes viral. Uh, there's a huge conservative backlash and media firestorm. And he, the main character is sort of struggling because his parents are going to lose their business because they run the Lincoln slept here bed and breakfast. And they bring in a civil rights attorney to help. And she has an openly gay son and sparks sort of fly between the two boys. But our main character is afraid of pursuit following his heart because straight kid, the, the kid that he's pretending to be saying Abraham Lincoln was gay is very different from a gay kid saying Abraham Lincoln was gay. He thinks no one will believe him about Abraham Lincoln. And if he really is going to change the world, he has to continue to pretend to be straight so people will believe that the truth about Abraham Lincoln. So he's sort of caught in this bind. And that book is called Queer as a $5 Bill. And um, and you actually helped me by producing a beautiful audiobook for that. Yes, it is in audio. So definitely want to check that. It's a great book. I I love that book. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, doing the research for that book, it was I just found so much evidence that Abraham Lincoln was indeed in love with Joshua Fry Speed. And it, I wanted to write like a page turning kind of like, you know, adventure novel. Like and I just couldn't shove it all in. And I was starting to think, well, maybe there's a nonfiction book here. But again, remember, I didn't particularly like history. And I thought, oh, a nonfiction book about Abraham Lincoln and Joshua Fry Speed, Snore. I don't even want to read that, <laughs> let alone write it. But then I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, for me, the thing, I, I started to collect these stories. This, because for me, it was sort of like Joshua and Abraham being in love was like the first crack in this false facade of history. Because history, as we, as it was taught to me, is basically the stories of rich, white, straight, cis men from Europe. Yep, pretty you know, much. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, those are the important people. And it turns out that's completely false. That yes, there were some important white, straight guys, but there were also a lot of really important women and people of color and indigenous people. And yeah, men who love men and women who love women and people who lived outside the gender binary. And like, darn, we want to hear those stories too. So it got me on this whole thing about like, well, okay, well, I, I'm queer. I, I can I can talk to the queer community's experience in history rather than trying to do everything. And I thought, well, what if I wrote a book that was about tearing down that false facade? And what if I profiled 12 people from history? Well, actually, I snuck in short profiles of 12 more, but uh, that's what No Way They Were Gay uh, is all about. It, the idea is that it's, let's look at how, how the facade is just completely ridiculous and that there are really important queer people in the past that we just don't know about or we don't know how they connect. And if I can, I want to tell one story. Sappho was a poet who lived thousands of years ago on a small island called Lesbos um, in the uh, Aegean Mediterranean area. And so Lesbos is where we get the word lesbian. And we get it because of Sappho, because Sappho was famous for a couple of things. She was famous for basically being like the rock star of her day. She was like, Lady Gaga and Britney Spears and, you know, Madonna, all these big, like, she was it. And she performed her poems, accompanying herself on a musical instrument. And she was so famous because her poetry was so incredible. And they were like, they were making lists of like the 10 most, uh, you know, the the Plato, uh, some famous old guy that talked about history. He He said that he was the 10th muse, right? There were these nine muses. Like, she was so esteemed. And the second thing she was super famous for was that she, her poems, the majority of her poems talked about her love for other women. Because of that, her poems were systematically sort of the evidence of her poetry has been erased. And they haven't erased all of it. We still have some that have survived, but we think that there was probably 10 times more than what we have that survived. There's one poem that survived that was really amazing, uh, almost in its entirety. In it, Sappho is talking about how all the other poets at that time that were famous were men. And their poems were pretty much about expressions of what today we would call toxic masculinity in terms of what they praised. They said, oh, the most beautiful thing on the earth is a fleet of warships going off to battle or a, a cavalry charging. Like that was what they held in most esteem. So Sappho writes this poem and she says, the most beautiful thing on the dark earth 
is actually the face of the woman I love, Anactoria. Because I'd rather see her face flashing radiant than all the force of Lydian chariots and their infantry in full display of arms. It's actually much more beautiful than that. But she writes this poem, and something about it captures the imagination of people at that time and through centuries. So what happens is that this ricochets down, this idea that love is the most important and powerful thing in the universe, in the world. This comes down to us through stories like, you know, 800 years ago when they, when in France, when they wrote Sleeping Beauty, what, what woke Sleeping Beauty up, right? It was the kiss of true love. And all the way through to all the Disney movies that we all are know so well, right? Like the kiss of true love is the most powerful thing in the universe. And it's all because Sappho was in love with this woman named Anactoria. Um, Sappho loved some other women too. She was quite amazing. But so we know about the kiss of true love and we know about Sappho, but we've lost the connection. We've, we've lost that thread that gives us this sort of legacy of how important queer people were in history. And I think that that is super exciting and fascinating. And I wanted to make sure that I could share that. And again, yeah. no time machine to get it back to yeah. myself. So yeah. Uh, yeah, happily the books are out there. Yeah. Well, you know, right now, especially, I think, and I don't mean like this week, this month, I mean, but the last, what's turned out to be several years, you know, there's been so much cultural noise about the appropriateness. And I think it's just intensifying right now, largely because of all of this, largely because of what's happening in our political arena. But a lot of cultural noise about the appropriateness of books for young people that center on really anything that's not like that almost white supremacist or, you know, patriarchal view, but that center on Black and queer lives. Could you speak about that? Yeah, thanks. Um, it's They're not going to be able to tell their kids. They're not going to be able to pretend that minorities don't exist. They can't pretend that we don't exist because everybody has a smartphone, right? Like, like... So what they've done is they've sort of tried to attack our history. And this you see with the Florida laws about banning the teaching of Black history, banning people from even talking about the existence of queer people, you know, from kindergarten through 12th grade. It's so, it's this effort to kind of push us back in the closet. And it's not really working very well. I mean, you know, there. I just a study was released. Yeah, there, there was a study released this. I think it was just a few weeks ago that said that the generation of people that today are between eighteen and twenty six, that twenty six percent of them, that's more than one in four, identify as something besides straight. Like I was like, wow, that's that's a lot. And then there was another study where they were of high school students and they were asking them about gender. And they found that one in 11 kids identify outside the gender binary. So that's amazing too. Oh, and one more thing. The Washington Post did a study uh, or, or they, they investigated this rash of book, book bannings that's been happening. And what they found looking at like over a thousand book bands that happened last year was that 60% of them were 11 people. <laughs> wow. like, think about that for a second. I mean, we know 11 people, right? Like, like <laughs> yeah. it is a very small group of people that are banning hundreds and hundreds and sometimes in some cases, thousands of books at a time with the effort of making it seem like there is this groundswell of concern about this these books that are dangerous, quote unquote, for, for young people. And the books, first of all, you're not going to, it's just going to make people feel alone. That's what it's going to do. Like, look, I had, I was raised by straight parents in a straight culture and I'm gay as the day is long. So it's like, it's, it's, it's not going to prevent people from, it's going to maybe force them to stay in the closet longer. And I think that that's terrible. So, also, the the idea that children should not be exposed to homosexual people, I think there's also a word thing going on. Like the word homosexual does not help the cause because it makes people that aren't queer think, oh, well, the only thing that's different about the, the thing that they focus on is that queer people have sex in a way that makes them uncomfortable. But if we focused on love rather than sex, right? If the word was homolovual rather than homosexual, 
we were talking about homolovial rights and homolovial history, we'd be having very different cultural conversations. In a way, we've been co-opted. In a lot of ways, like, you know, the autonomy of women over their own bodies has been co-opted by the language of pro-life, right? Like, what they're not pro-life. They're, they're, they're against women having the control of their own bodies. That's not... If they were pro-life, they'd care about the kid once it was born. Like, we have to be so careful about the language we all use. And we got really co-opted with this homosexual because it really works against us. Yeah. So that's how I feel about like, you know, like it, it's really important for kids to know about, to see reflections of themselves, to understand that there are people different from themselves that also had significant roles in history that also are, are, have, have the same hearts that they do. Like that's all really, really important. And it's just sad that the librarians are afraid now. And teachers are afraid. And I, you know, with my hat from the Independent Book Publishers Association, we hear a lot of stories from publishers that are saying that their sales are down 50% because to, to schools and libraries, you know, precisely because the book bans have created an atmosphere of fear for the people that are like, wow, do I bring in this book or if it risks my job? Like, that's a hard, hard situation to be in. Yeah. That, you know, uh, there was a, a podcast episode that I watched on uh, Midas Touch Network. Shout out to them. But about this whole, so it was a college professor who, and it was all about how, you know, there's this claim uh, that higher education is like poisoning the minds, right? You know, and when really it's like, it's the exact opposite. It's like, this is the moment when we are like our, our K-12 education system has been so controlled by forces that are making it harder, making it a battle to have a diverse education, right? And, you know, but then we go off to to college away from our uh, the communities in which we've been trained and all of this has been inculcated into our thinking. And then we go, oh, wow, there's actually there are so many other kinds of people out here that I didn't even know about. And so I, 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 and I also just also want to completely support what you're saying in terms of, and it's not just kids that, that may be gay or queer or may be, you know, or, or have a, you know, a different color skin. It's like we all maybe even especially those who are, you know, in that sort of mainstream Caucasian scenario that just those kids, you know, I think about my grandkids when we're in this conversation, you know, about how important it is for those kids to be able to have access to this, these kinds of of books that really help us see, oh, yeah, we're, they're all different kinds of people. We're all different kinds of people. And isn't that great? No, yeah, and and to kind of, I think for years the, the message was, you know, tolerance. We should teach tolerance, um, and then they were like, they upgraded it a little bit to acceptance. We should teach acceptance, <laughs> and so it's like, like I like, can we just aim higher? Can we aim yeah. to celebrate <laughs> <Please>. differences? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of book banning and and that the current climate, what's how has that impacted your books? So it's. Definitely, I've been, No Way They Were Gay has made it to a few of those lists, which on the one hand, it's like, you know, I get friends being like, congratulations, you you have a banned <laughs> book. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, like the, the reality is that when you're like maybe the, the top 10 most banned book in the country, you get a lot of press, you get a lot of attention, you sell a lot of books. But for the vast middle of the thousands of books that are on these lists, on these challenged and banned lists, you know, on number, you know, 542 on some lists, like it doesn't help the sale of my book. It just sort of like, it creates a red flag, you know, even though my book has won awards and, you know, it's, uh, was a junior library guild selection. Uh, it's comes from a publisher learner who is really, you know, respected with libraries and schools. It, it makes it harder. So my first book, Queer the Five Dollar Bill, was actually crowdfunded. So I was the publisher. I hired a team to, to do it professionally. And I control the rights to that book and the audiobook as well. So 
I decided when No Way They Were Gay started to show up on all these band lists, I was like, oh, what can I do? What can I do that actually helps? So I thought about the audiobook, which is beautiful. And it has, I think, 34 chapters. And I decided I was going to make it a podcast. So I created the Queer as a $5 Bill, the podcast. And every episode is a chapter. So, uh, and then I, you know, I set up like a little closet area in my house and, you know, made it a little recording studio. And I did the intros and the outros. And we had, uh, had, hired a friend that is a musician and he played a little you know musical song from the civil from the um, civil war era and uh kind of updated it so i was like was working with the music i used to be a television editor so i'm able to do a little bit of editing uh if it's not too complicated so i i kind of created this podcast and just thinking all right i'm gonna go around the book banners i'm gonna just make this book available for free for everyone forever so yeah, if anyone's listening or wants to hear the Queer's Five Dollar Bill, it's available. Just search it as a as a podcast. And I felt pretty good about that. Like it was something I actually could do that could make a difference. And yeah, and 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 it's kind of podcasts have a really long shelf life, which is really really cool about them. It's not like an Instagram post, right? I yes, and I think that is such a great strategy. I love that you did that. It's really excellent. And anecdotally, it's really interesting because, um, you know, it's listening to a, a, a book where between every chapter you have an intro and an outro, it's a little cumbersome. So funny enough, I did see sales of the audiobook go up once I released it as a free podcast because I think <laughs> people were like, oh, I just want to hear the story. I don't want leads, intro, outros, even though they weren't super long. But um, so that was really interesting. It kind of ended up being a marketing strategy. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Lee, let's just take a short pause and then we'll come right back. Would you like to earn more from your audiobook sales? If you're an author with an audiobook, you may have noticed that royalties from Audible especially and other platforms as well are frankly kind of pathetically low disappointingly low, and unfairly low considering what it cost you in effort and resources to create it. How is it the retailers are the ones making all the money off your work and investment? As someone who started in the audiobook industry in 1981, I've found it frustrating that authors keep getting shortchanged. The good news is that Pro Audio Voices just launched Amplify Audiobooks, a direct sale audiobook platform for authors that puts you back in the driver's seat. Earn 65% of the gross sales price that you set. Compare that to the percentage of the percentage that retailers give. Run promotions on schedule whenever you want. Create coupon codes. Build community with your customers since you'll know who they are and how to contact them. Work with a caring, responsive, supportive team to help you succeed all along the way. Get help with marketing. Get paid weekly. We're helping audiobook authors who are frustrated by painfully low royalties and the barriers that prevent them from managing their own products and customers. Amplify Audiobooks is a direct sale platform that enables authors to earn much higher royalties and have way more control. We're disrupting the audiobook industry by putting authors first. Get started today at proaudiovoices.app or go to proaudiovoices.com and click on the distribution amplify link. Join the movement. So, Lee, you have a couple new books coming out in the spring of 2024. Would you tell us about those? Yay. Thank you. I'm so excited. All right. So the first one I want to tell you about is called A Different Kind of Brave. It is my gay teen love letter to James Bond movies, basically. Oh, <laughs> that's wow. My, that's my pitch. <laughs> I love James Bond movies and I have since I was a little kid. And I was always wondering like, well, what, what would a gay teen James Bond story be like? And so I, I wrote this, uh, this YA novel. I've worked on it for a very long time, probably six years. 
And finally, it, it's, it got published. It's getting, it's coming out um, from Inter- Duet Books, which uh, Interlude. They are a imprint of Chicago Review Press now. And I'm really excited. We actually just this week got the first trade review for the book. And it was a starred review from Forward Reviews. So that's nice. very exciting. Yeah. And um, I'm just going to read I, I, I literally printed it out. Would you read it? Please read it. I'm yeah. just going to read the, the one <laughs> one sentence from it. It says, Great. A Different Kind of Brave is a gem for young adults, not just a high-octane thriller, but also a queer romance full of heart and sensuality. Oh, that's beautiful. So, yeah, congratulations. Like my, impo- my, my author imposter syndrome, my writer imposter syndrome was like me. It was like it was told to go sit in the corner and be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. I was like, oh, they liked it. That's so nice. Yeah. So basically, it's a story about two teens. One is sort of living a life of adventure, but it's quite hard. And it's you know, the, a movie may say make it seem glamorous, but he's actually really struggling. He, the book opens with him escaping from this gay reprogramming center that he's been basically imprisoned in, and then he's on the run for the rest of the novel. And then the other main character, the story is told in alternating viewpoints, um, and that that character's name is Nico. The other main character, his name is Sam, and he's sort of a privileged Upper West Side New York City uh, only child who. It idolizes James Bond and, you know, knows all the James Bond movies and is super into it. And he starts the book sort of in a place of heartbreak and decides that, you know, he wants to be more like James Bond. And the reason James Bond is so often is that he doesn't care about anything but accomplishing the mission and kind of he's closed his heart off to love. So then the the two guys meet in the middle of the story and um, they fall in love and they end up sort of having this one shot to go back and free all the other kids that are in this reprogramming institute. And it's sort of like this high stakes adventure and romance. And I'm I'm very, very excited about it. It's uh, so great. <laughs> it's very much like a book that would have like totally changed my life had I read it when I was a kid. Right. I think that's like the yardstick I use for everything I write. Like, <laughs> would this have changed my life as a kid if I read it? Yeah. I'm like, yep, this would have. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's great. And and what's the other one, the other book? Oh, thanks. Um, so the other one is um the second book. So no way they were gay is actually as part of a series, um called the Queer History Project. And so this is uh the new one is called is book two in the series, and it's called the Gender Binary is a Big Lie. And this book was really hard to write because it turns out that the gender binary is, by the way, a complete lie, and just like tearing down that false facade of history was sort of a bit of a liberation because it tells everybody, right, that, well, there's there's history, there's women's history, there's there's disabled people's history, there's people of color's history, there's indigenous people's history, there's all these other histories that haven't really been told. And in, in that book, I talked, I had a whole section about, you know, sort of people who lived outside the gender binary, but I wanted to go deeper into that because we live in a culture, Western culture, that basically says there are two options. You are born with a male body or you're born with a female body. And then you either, if you have a male body, you become a boy and a man. And if you have a female body, you become a girl or a woman. And that's it. That we, we basically have two boxes. It is completely not true. First of all, there are other kinds of bodies called, generally called intersex. And the, uh, the prevalence of intersex people is, I think, 1.7%. So that is the exact same number of people who are naturally redheaded. So that's a lot of people. If you imagine how much redhead, how many redheads you see. Um, and then it's like not just that intersex people exist, but it's also that there are so many other genders that people are living. And there's a lot of talk in the sort of the, the, the conservative noise of the moment about how well, this is all new. You know, in my, it, you know, in my parents' day, there weren't queer people or in their, in their parents' day. And it's like, oh, no, actually there were. And in fact, our cultural view has made us really myopic. And we don't recognize that there are other cultures still today that see gender very differently than we do. One great example is in Southern Sulawesi, uh, Indonesia, there is a community of people called the Bugi, and they have five genders. They, which, you know, they have men, they have women, they have Kalabai and Kalalai, um, one of which is um, people with male bodies who live a, a more feminine, uh, 
gender role. And then they have the opposite, you know, people with female bodies who live a male gender role. And then they have uh, Bisu, which are sort of encompasses everyone else. And it's people that sort of transcend gender. There are either both genders or they're none gender, no, they're, they're no gender at all. And they sort of serve a, a spiritual ritual role in their culture. Uh, they can serve. And so like that is fascinating. And that's not just historical. That's still today. Like they, they still feel that way that they still hold those cultural beliefs about gender today. It turns out that gender is this cultural construction, right? It's this idea we have about who can be what. And when we recognize that the gender binary, as we've been presented it, is this lie, it turns out it's a liberation for all of us, even those of us that may think that we are happy within our box, within our gender box. Because when you really stop and think about it, like we gender, we say that certain things are assigned to certain genders and it's kind of absurd like shampoo and nail polish and clothes and like it, it can it, it can get toys for kids it can get so silly and we think that these laws are immutable like oh pink is for girls well you know newsflash a hundred years ago not even a hundred years ago pink was the color for boys because it was stronger and, you know, there's, there's this great quote I have from some like children's, you know, um, clothing, uh, catalog, uh, Earnshaw's infants department. And they're like, you know, pink is decidedly a color for boys because it's stronger. Well, blue is daintier and more appropriate for girls. <laughs> that was only a hundred years ago. And so we, we, we look at our gender, our, our gender sort of, you know, laws. And a lot of it is about reinforcing the sort of colonial power of that sort of like, you know, straight white men in power. And even the laws against cross-dressing in America, there's a fascinating book by Claire Sears, uh, called Arresting Dress. It's so, there's so many of these stories. We do this thing in our, and we have since the 50s, that when an intersex baby is born, Oftentimes, there's an operation to make on, on their bodies to make them look more like they were born with a male body or born with a female body. And intersex people, a lot of intersex people experience this as a violation of their civil rights because they're babies. They can't consent to having their bodies changed. So, um, and it turns out that that theory that doctors were were operating under that they could do that was was basically a theory and then it was reinforced by a lie and there was this incredible story um in this book called as as nature made him i'm looking because my bookshelf is right there and it's about these twins these twin boys that were born in canada and there was an operation on them when they were seven months old and there was an accident and one of them lost their entire penis in the accident. And so the parents were distraught and they didn't know what to do. And they ended up consulting with this doctor in America that was pretty famous. And um, his name was Dr. Money. If you want to like roll your <laughs> eyes about how ridiculous, how sometimes <laughs> the, the truth is more ridiculous than fiction. Like yep. you couldn't write that. His name was Dr. Money. And he basically consulted, like urged them to raise the child as a girl because it was like, well, doesn't have a penis. Let's raise the boy as a girl. And it, he basically lied for years about it being a huge success when it was actually a disaster. And she was, the, 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 the child was so unhappy. And it, that lie persisted. It was, he published widely. He was, it was reported in the New York Times book review and in Time magazine about the triumph of nurture over nature. And Sadly, feminists really picked up on it as well. And they were like, woo, this proves that, you know, it, what, what keeps us down is society. And it does, society does keep women down, but it <laughs> right. doesn't prove that you can change somebody's gender by trying to raise them to be something else that they aren't. And it was, it was really sad and, but also fascinating. And I'd never heard about it. So the, the gender binary is a big lie is looking at a lot of those kinds of things to try to liberate us all from this complete ridiculousness of the idea that there's only two ways to be a human being. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So before I still have more questions for you, but I just want to take a moment to let people, our listeners know, if you just tell them what your website is now, and then we're going to ask, I'll ask again at the end of the episode, but. Sure. It's Lee Wind, my name, L-E-E-W-I-N-D dot O-R-G. Great. Thanks. All right. So I'm just going to shift a little bit to your day job. So you are not a full-time writer. You've got a lot going on at Independent Book Publishers Association. Tell us a little bit about what you do there. Yeah, and I'll just say that, you know, I had this fantasy that being a being a full-time writer would mean like supporting my family through my books and like no, that's not been the case. I I'm passionate about the books I write, but it's not it's not how I define success in in being an author. Again, it goes back to that like I want to touch hearts. I want to change minds. I want to make an impact on on the world uh, in that way. But I need a day job. <laughs> I'm very happy to have found one that I really care about. It turns out that when you walk into any bookstore, 80% of the books you see are published by five corporations. The other 20% are published by thousands of independent presses. And there is actually an association of those independent presses. And, you know, and that includes uh, small publishers, university presses, association presses, nonprofit presses, and, you know, even authors that publish their own work like I did, you with Queer's $5 bill with, with crowdfunding it. And so we're a big tent and uh, IBPA, and I'm currently the chief content officer, and I try to help with the programming and really about empowering these publishers to compete in climate that really privileges the big marketing budgets of the corporate publishers. So a lot of the things we do is sort of like cooperative marketing programs where uh, one example is like the cover of Publishers Weekly. It's like twelve dollars or $14,000 to put your book on the cover of Publishers Weekly. But we run a program where we put like 12 different books on the cover of Publishers Weekly. So every publisher is only paying like 950 bucks. So it's like access. And, and we try to do a lot of those things because it's expensive to get word out about your book. There are like millions of books being published every year. And so to help people rise above the noise, to also help them understand how to publish professionally, whether they're doing it them, you know, as, as whether they're the author and they're, they want to learn how to do it professionally. We don't use the term self publishing because we think it tricks people into thinking, Oh, well, I can do it all myself. Uh, no. Right. <laughs> if, if no one's going to pay me to design the cover of their book, I have no business designing the cover of my own book. So similarly, you know, if you're going to be an author publisher, which is what we call it, you have to actually hire a team of people to do it really professionally. And then we really do a lot of education. We do a lot of advocacy and, um, and try to offer those tools for success. Yeah. And Bay Area Independent Publishers Association that I'm president of is, a, is an affiliate organization to IBPA. And, and uh, just IBPA is wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. And, yeah. and I also want to just add that I think that it's a big driver. Independence are a big driver of diversity in publishing. Because so the corporate publishers, they're owned by these giant corporations. And ultimately, they're beholden to their stock market value and to and not even long term, like their next quarter stock market value. So everything is really underpinned by that. And there may be there are wonderful people working in corporate publishing. I don't want to take away from them. Sure. But at the end of the day, even if their motivations are well intentioned, the the ultimate driver is are they making money? For independent publishers, what I have seen is that yes, they want to make money, but the motivation at the end of the day is their mission. They are really mission driven. And a great example of that is Patagonia, which um, one of one of our members that was a chair of our board, um, Carla Olson, she is the publisher at Patagonia. I mean, they could have been published by any of, they were courted by all of the big corporate publishers, but they decided that to align with their mission, the handful of books they publish every year, they want to make sure they're on, you know, recycled paper and they're beautiful and, you know, they hold on to the, the, the integrity of their vision of what the kinds of books they want to publish. They decided to be independent publishers. So like, that's a great example. I mean, they're kind of famous, but they're a great example of, you know, there's a lot of power in independent publishing and it, it gives a lot of access to people that otherwise might not have it. Yeah. You, so you're also running, do a, a regular blog, right? 
Yeah, I've actually blogged for I think 17 years at this point. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm here. I'm queer. What the hell do I read? Is the name of my blog. Again, it's at leewin.org. And um, and doing that actually got me a gig with the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators doing their blogging. So I kind of sneak that in on the weekends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you have time to get all that in, balance it all? Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, so I'm going to throw this right back at you because <laughs> I want to hear, Becky, how you do a podcast and run a, a audiobook production company and are a writer yourself <laughs> and run BAPA. Like, it's... It is... Yeah. Okay, that's all fair. right. So I want to hear your answer, and then I'll answer mine. <laughs> How do you balance it all? Oh well, I think it's uh, a lot of it is about team and collaboration, and and trying to focus in on where can I be most effective in terms of the the specific tasks that I take on, and where can I better delegate to somebody else, and 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 so it's a combination of great team delegation and Something I have learned more in the last about five years, five, six years maybe now, is around taking the time actually to not be working. So there are, I, I've, I have found that I am tremendously more efficient and better at what I do of, for each thing that I do when I actually work fewer hours and have time for my 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 brain, my mind to rest, enjoy life, just, you know, the other parts of life, you know, the family, the partner, the, you know, um, all of that, um, dancing, things like that, reading. I so. love that. That's such a, it's a lesson I've been learning too. I, I, I recently saw on uh, social media, uh, some study, they had taken a bunch of trees and they had injected them with like tree adrenaline or something to make the trees bypass their dormant period of winter. So the trees went right from fall to spring. They forced the trees to, to not rest and all the trees died. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I, I'm laughing in pain. Like it's a horrible story, yeah. but yeah. the lesson is really profound. Like yeah. you cannot, you cannot be in harvest season 365 days a year. You need to have, the dormant time, you need to have the, the, the spring where something just starts. You need to have the summer where it grows and you nurture it and then you get the harvest and then you need to rest again. And I think like on a macro level, that's very helpful, but also on the micro level, like, yeah, you need a good night's sleep. Um, you know, you need some time to, for self care. And it is, it is amazing because I agree. I am much more efficient if I am good to myself. Then yeah. if I am like, you must work 24 yes. hours in this 24-hour <laughs> period. And um, yeah, and uh, sorry, I was just no. going to say balance is also, I don't think you can have balance. I don't think you balance everything all at once perfectly. I think that you are taking turns. You know, you're going to work a little bit on this and then you're going to pause and then you're going to work a little bit on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, I think a little bit like balance when we walk or when we dance. It's it's not about like we're always still. It's that we're we're constantly moving and adjusting and and flowing. And I just uh, you reminded me how you know years ago I just was would work nonstop pretty much you know and until I could until I drop and. Thankfully, I don't do that anymore. I thanks to my mentor. Shout out to Steve Napolitan. Okay. So, but the, now when we're on a team meeting, let's say, you know, uh, and somebody says, you know what, I just, I'm having trouble focusing. We go, okay, we need to stop, you know, it's just, or you need to take a break or, you know, but we're getting better at recognizing when it's like, oh, I'm not, it's harder for me to pay attention right now than it was 10 minutes ago. It must be break time, you know, and so we, we're honoring that and trying to, really recognize that, honor it, and then we find that everything just happens more smoothly. So it's good. It's good. That's great. I love that. So one, let's, let's wrap up with one last question. And you touched on, on some of this already, so it might be just a reiteration. And then I am going to have you reiterate what your website is. But what would you say for you as an author, what does success mean to you? 
I think we, we come full circle. Um, there's a, a great quote I love from the author Anne Lamott. She has a book on the craft of writing called Bird by Bird. And in it, she talks about how lighthouses don't run all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there and they shine. I take a lot of inspiration from that. And I think about how I am not trying to convince people that I'm right and they're wrong about history. It's that's that seems exhausting. <laughs> also, yeah. I have no control over how other people will take what I'm putting out in the world, but I want to focus on how how empowered I feel and how excited I am to shine a light on these things. And you know, I think of my my nonfiction books as sort of like holding space for the, all these other voices. It's they're loaded with primary sources and learner did let me do something really cool, which is that all the primary sources in, in both books are in bold. So it's really easy for a young reader to see their books are for like ages 11 and up really easy for a young reader to see like what was said, what's the primary source? What did Abraham Lincoln say? And what is Lee's sort of commentary about it? And I really think like by shining a light, like each book feels like another light on in the lighthouse. Each each opportunity to talk about this, this this podcast. Thank you. This is another light on in the lighthouse, and I just want to shine. And I, you know, I don't know whether it's going to impact this person or that person, but I do believe that the brighter I, my lighthouse can shine, the more hearts I will reach. And again, it's just that one heart, and uh, and then maybe that's success. Oh, that is so beautiful that actually brings tears to my eyes thank you for sharing that how can our listeners tell us again uh how they can best find out more about you and your writing sure check out my website it's uh leewind.org you can sign up for my newsletter there's a fun quiz to take about queer history which is uh tricky i don't think i would have passed <laughs> the quiz had i uh I mean, it's not like we're, you're not graded. It sort of says, you know, like what are your what pride colors would you, you know, would you win for for taking the quiz? But it's crazy. There's all this really fun and cool stuff, and yeah, there's more information about the books and links through and independent than that. And I welcome getting to have them be part of the community. Great, Lee. Thank you so much for being with me today. This has been really delightful. Thanks, Becky. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us for Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. Please take a moment to subscribe at audiobookconnection.com. The podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Learn more at proaudiovoices.com. Again, thanks for being with us and please join us next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.